Please turn with me to Genesis chapter 13. Continue our study of the life of Abraham. Genesis chapter 13. When I was in high school, I began uh, camping, backpacking, rock climbing, and in the process, I picked up the skill of rappelling because it's great to know how to go up, but you also have to get down afterwards. And I discovered in rappelling a lot of uh, wonderful analogies for life, uh, particularly for the Christian life. To rappel correctly, safely, and actually enjoy it, you have to lean back. You, you have to trust the rope. If you don't, if you lean forward and feel like you need to be in control and grab the rock, then your feet slip out, your knees hit the rock. If your hands aren't ready, your face hits the rock. I've seen it on many occasions. Actually, this little girl here who's smiling right now, she's leaning a little too far forward. I have seen people get nervous, get scared, reach to grab the rock, and things don't turn out well. And sometimes I've seen folks get so so frightened, they grip the rock and will not let go. And someone has to climb down to pry their fingers off of the rock so that they will lean back. And it's so hard to do because it's so unnatural. Right? When we're, we're born, our mommies wrap us up in a blanket and they lay us on our backs. And then we spend the next several months trying to get upright. Right? And then we spend the rest of our waking hours upright. We're either sitting or standing or walking But in our minds, that's how we are supposed to be. We're not supposed to be bent over like this. But that's the only way that it works when you repel. You have to trust. Which is a wonderful analogy, I feel like, for the spiritual life. When we try and be in control, we reach forward and we grab hold of the rock. And we have our feet slip out and our knees get skinned. We might hit our face on the wall. But sometimes we get so scared, even when we're bloodied and bleeding, we won't let go of the rock. And then God has to step in periodically and pry our hands off the rock and teach us, train us, just to lean back and to trust in him. As Jeremiah says, Jeremiah chapter 17, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is in the Lord. For he will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream and will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaves will be green and it will not be anxious in a year of drought nor cease to yield fruit. Last week we looked at Abraham's life. We looked at four major failures. Times when Abraham felt like he needed to be in control and he reached forward to grab the rock and he busted up his knees and skinned up his face. Life didn't go well. But interspersed with those failures were times when Abraham leaned back and he learned again in a fresh way to trust in God. What was it that restored his trust? Simply worship. Abraham returned to that that fundamental, that foundational activity of the Christian life, which is worship. I want you to read with me beginning in Genesis chapter 13 and verse 1. So Abraham went up from Egypt to the Negev, he and his wife and all that belonged to him and Lot with him. Now Abraham was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. He went on his journeys from the Negev as far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and I, to the place of the altar which he had made there formerly, and there Abram called on the name of the Lord, and he worshipped. Abraham's faith was restored when he went back to the place where things began, where Jesus, or where the Lord, where Yahweh was at the very center of his life, and he worshipped. Now to put this uh, in story and perspective in his life again, you recall that 
Abram was called to the Lord when he was down in Ur of the Chaldeans. It's where he'd been born. It's where he'd been raised. He was raised in a, a pagan home, in a pagan culture. Before he had done anything good to turn to the Lord, God reached out and revealed himself to Abram and called him to himself. And so Abram left Ur of the Chaldeans. He didn't obey perfectly. He took his father and he took his nephew with him. He was supposed to go alone, but he took them with him and he stopped in Haran. And he was there for several years and then he packed up again, leaving his father behind in Haran, but he took his nephew Lot with him again and he went down into the promised land. He traveled from the north of the end of the promised land all the way to the south, down into the Negev, which is a desert region. You remember that once he got down in the Negev, he'd been there for a while and a drought hit and there was famine in the land. And Abram didn't know what to do, and so he did what seemed most logical to him, what thousands of other people were doing. They were going down to Egypt where there was fertility, there was prosperity, there was food. And he didn't consult with the Lord. Instead, he followed his own plan. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And he went down there believing that he could provide for his family by taking them there, and what he discovered was tragedy. His wife was taken away from him, even though he had laid out a plan. No, just say you're my sister and then all will be good. But it didn't work that way. Instead, Pharaoh came in and took his wife. And he's now in greater fear that his wife will remain taken away from him. How can the promise be fulfilled? And so God has to intervene. God rescues him. God strikes Pharaoh and Pharaoh's household with plagues. And Abram's a curse, not a blessing to the Egyptians. And so they say, get out. Get out, and, and Abram leaves, and he leaves uh, with his tail tucked between his legs, not being a blessing, being a curse, and he heads back into the promised land, okay? back to Bethel. And I, I don't know this for sure, it's not in the text, but I just imagine that it was a pretty quiet journey. You know, I, just, I can't imagine that there was a lot good to talk about between Abram and Sarah. I mean, their wealth, that was good, but where had they gotten a lot of that? From Pharaoh, well, how were things with Pharaoh? What's he like? I don't think Abram asked that question. I think they silently walked back. Abram didn't know what to do. His family had been turned upside down. And so he goes back to Bethel. He goes back to the place or the house of God. He goes back to worship. This is repentance. In Hebrew, the word repent means literally to turn or to return. Abraham had taken God out of the center of his life. He had consulted just himself to make his plans, and now he returns. He returns to the house of God. God becomes center in his life again. He repents. He returns. This is described in the book of Joel, Joel chapter 2. It says, yet even now declares the Lord, return to me, that is, repent. Turn, return, return with all your heart and with fasting and weeping and mourning and rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God for he is gracious and compassionate. He's slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, relenting of evil. Turn, return. Even Abraham, the father of our faith, needed a fresh start with God. And so what did he do? He went back, back to the house of God. He didn't know everything about God, did he? 
He didn't know all of God's plan for his future, but he knew something about God. He knew something about God's plan. And so he rehearsed that. He gathered all of his people together, his family that he had, which was small at that time, but he had hundreds of people who traveled with him. The strangers of the land probably came around as well. He built an offer, made a sacrifice, and he proclaimed what he knew was true of God. He is the one true God. He worshiped. And as Abraham worshiped, there was transformation again in his life. And there were two results, fearless giving and effective deliverance. In other words, Abraham once again was in a position that he could be a blessing as God had intended. Fearless giving and effective deliverance. Read with me again, chapter 13 and verse 5. Now Lot who went with Abram also had flocks and herds and tents, And the land could not sustain them while dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to remain together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Now the Canaanite and the Perizzite were dwelling in the land, and the Canaanite and the Perizzite were aware of a conflict within Abram's family, and Abram was not being a blessing. If I were Abram, I would have said, you know, Lot, it's time for you to leave. This is my land, right? This land was promised to me. You're just tagging along. And God told me to leave you behind, but I didn't. Now that you're here, it's time. Go find your own land. Go find your own promise. Get your own God to make a promise to you. This is mine. But he doesn't. Instead, Abram resolves the conflict with grace. Verse 8. So Abram said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen. For we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If to the left, then I will go to the right. If to the right, then I will go to the left. Lot lifted up his eyes and he saw all the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go to Zoar. In other words, This is a land that doesn't depend upon the seasonal rains. This is a land that is watered by the Jordan River. And we can dig trenches and canals and we can water. It's always going to be fertile. It's like Egypt with the Nile. It's like the Garden of the Lord, the Promised Land with the Euphrates River. It's a place in which you can live securely and abundantly and you don't actually have to trust in God. Lot looks out and he sees this is the easiest land to live in. It's the most comfortable land to live in. And so he chooses that. And Abram journeys the other direction. So Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan and Lot journeyed eastward. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled in the cities of the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly. And sinners against the Lord. So Lot goes one way. Abram goes the other. And as soon as they separate, what happens? God can speak again to Abram. God reveals himself again to Abram. Verse 14. Then the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are. Northward, southward, eastward, westward. For all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants 
can also be numbered. Arise, walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. Previously, when Abram had been in Bethel, God had said, this is the land. And now God says, I want you to do a survey. This is yours, this is yours, this is yours, and this is yours. Walk about it and enjoy it because all of it will be yours. Even that area that Lot has taken for himself. You see the cycle of what's happened here? Abram had walked away from God. He'd gone down to Egypt. He'd, he'd leaned into the rock. He'd taken matters into his own hands and he'd gotten busted up. His, his family had been turned upside down. But then he turned, he returned, and he went back to worship the Lord. He didn't know what was next. He just knew he needed to get back to that place where God was the center of his life. And when he did that, God refreshed and restored his faith. Didn't mean that life would be perfect or easy or that there would be no trials. In fact, trial enters in immediately. There's a conflict between him and Lot. But now Abram has the the strength spiritually to deal with it. He deals with grace with Lot. Instead of sending Lot away, he opens up his hands and says, take from the best of what is mine. Take what has been promised to me for yourself. He doesn't feel the need to cling to it or to control it or to master it because his concept of God has been refreshed and restored through worship. And when Lot departs, Abram's in a place where God can once again reveal himself to Abram in a fresh way. And he gets greater revelation. And that greater revelation leads to greater worship. John 14, verse 21, it says, He who has my commandments and keeps them, this is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and notice, and I will disclose myself to him. When Abram obeyed, God opened up further revelation of himself. See, we often try to approach God in the opposite way, right? We say, God, reveal yourself to me and then I will obey. God says, obey what you know and I will reveal myself to you. Do you want to know more? Then obey what you know. Did Abraham know everything? No. But he obeyed what he knew. He went back to that place and he began to worship. He took steps of faith. And when he did, God opened up new revelation to Abram. And Abram Worshipped, And Abraham got back in this cycle, not of taking matters into his own hands, but into a cycle of worship. Chapter 13, verse 18. Then Abram moved his tent. Right? He's doing his survey of the land that's been promised to him. Abram moved his tent and came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron. And there he built another altar to the Lord. And he worships, and he grows in confidence, and so he can worship more. And he can take greater steps of faith, and as he does, God reveals himself more to Abram, and he worships more, and he worships more. Now let's think about Lot for a moment. When Lot was with Abram, what did Lot experience? Blessing, right? Lot grew in wealth, in power, and in influence, because he was with the blesser. God's chosen blesser. He was safe, he was secure, he was blessed because he was with Abram. Now, we're told, Lot looks down and he sees where the easy life can be. Where the land is watered by the Jordan River. Where are there, there are well-developed cities and he can lead a comfortable life. And we're told, Lot journeyed toward the east. What does it mean in Genesis when you move to the east? means you're moving away from God. And Lot is moving away from the blessing of Abram. He's moving away from the presence of God. He's journeying to the east. So what should we expect 
in Lot's life? Trouble, right? <laughs> Expect trouble. Verse four, or chapter 14 and verse 1. And it came about in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Keterlamer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, or the Hittites, that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, with Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, and Shemaber, king of Zeboim, and, king of, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. I, I practiced that <laughs> this week. <laughs> Hang with me with the names, okay? Sorry for our signing team. <laughs> it's a little different, isn't it? Eh, okay. Just Bill, John, just insert as you need to, okay? All right. All these came as allies to the Valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Ketelamer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Ketelamer and the kings that were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtarot, Kanarim, and Zuzim, and Ham, and Emim, and in Sheva, Kiriataim, and the Horites in their mount. Sair, as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. Okay? Um, might help just to put this again in context geographically. Here's what's happened. There are four kings that are allies. They're led by the king of Elam. You'll notice down in the lower right-hand corner of this map, that's, that's the Persian king. Okay? Persian king has three other allies. He leads a confederation of four kings. And they're in control of uh, the Fertile Crescent, all the way up through Tigris and Euphrates rivers, all the way down through Canaan toward Egypt. This was the central trade route. If you wanted to get from the east into Egypt, or if you wanted to get from the east and get into uh, Turkey, into Asia Minor, and into Europe, the trade route would go up, then it would turn south, and then it would split when it went through Canaan. There was a a way of the sea that went along the Mediterranean, but then there was also uh, what's called the King's Highway. That was the central trade route. It went down through modern-day Jordan. We see Amman on the map there, and then it looped through the desert, through through the Negev, and over into Egypt. And so what these kings did was they realized we can't allow the central trade route to be in rebellion against us because that's where we gain so much wealth, is we're trading with Egypt back and forth. And so they went on the attack. These four kings went and they attacked and they traveled down, up through uh, the, the Fertile Crescent, down through Damascus, down the King's Highway through Amman. They made a loop through the Negev and then they came back with all the spoils. Well, Sodom and Gomorrah were along that pathway that they took. And so they captured Sodom and Gomorrah as well as a couple, three other regional kings captured their cities, captured their people, captured all their wealth, and they took it and they're hightailing it back into the Fertile Crescent. Abraham hears about this and he goes to rescue Lot, his nephew. Chapter 14, verse 13. Then a fugitive came and told Abram the Hebrew. Now he was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eschol, and the brother of Aner, and these were allies with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he let out his trained men, born in his house, 318, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Now, we don't normally think of Abram as a warrior, but if you lived in those days, you needed to know how to battle. Because if you were rich and you were wealthy, you had to physically protect your wealth. And so Abram has 318 men who are trained for war living with him. He also has allies among the Amorites, and they all gathered together. It says he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. 
He brought back all the goods. He also brought back his relative lot with his possessions and also the women and the people. He strikes an amazing and perfect victory against a much stronger foe. Now, Abraham and his men, along with a few of his allies, a few hundred men, it's, it's like Gideon. They go against the king of Persia and his allies, and they capture everything back. Okay, everything. Abram's walking with the Lord. Abram's worshiping. Abram's got God now again at the center of his life. He's committing all of his plans to the Lord. He's not taking matters into his own hands. And so he takes a dramatic step of faith and and courage and he goes after these kings and he captures everything back. Abraham blesses his nephew. Abraham blesses the people of Sodom. Abraham blesses the people of Gomorrah. He blesses all of these people through his act of deliverance. And what happens? Three things. Once again, he receives greater revelation of God, his character and who he is. He once again practices growing worship and he experiences rising confidence in his God. Read with me. Chapter 14 and verse 17. Then after his return from the defeat of Keterlamer and the kings who were with him, The king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God Most High. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Now who in the world is Melchizedek? Who is he? He just appears out of nowhere. We haven't heard anything about him. And after this, we will not see him in the history of the world again. Four verses, he emerges and then he disappears. Who is he? Well, some people say that maybe he's an angel. He's an angel of God who appears in human form. Possible. Others say, no, this is the Son of God before he took on human flesh, that is the pre-incarnate Christ, who's come down and he's ruling, he's reigning in Salem or Jerusalem. Uh, Again, possible, but I don't think so. I think this is a human king who serves as a model or a type of a king who will come, who is the Son of God, Jesus Christ. I want you to turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. And verse 3. Hebrews 7, verse 3. Speaking of Melchizedek. It says, Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. Notice what he says. Made like the Son of God, He remains a priest perpetually. In other words, he's not the son of God, but he was made like the son of God. His life serves as a pattern because sometimes God reveals himself in direct prophecy. A son will be born where? In in Bethlehem. Okay. Very specific prophecy. But sometimes God lays out patterns for us to see in history. I think Melchizedek is one of these patterns or a type. He is like God's son who will come. It's not that he doesn't have a genealogy. It's that we don't know his genealogy. And from that, we can see a pattern of the Son of God who has no beginning and has no end, but remains as king and priest forever. 
So in what ways is he like the future son of God coming? Well, he's king and he's priest and he's king and priest forever. Okay. Read with me chapter seven, verse one, Hebrews chapter seven, verse one. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, who met Abram as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abram apportioned a tenth of all the spoils, was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Melchizedek is a king. We know that from his name. He's a king. Melech means king. Zedek means righteousness. He's the king of righteousness, or literally My king is righteous, meaning my king governs according to righteous standards, also meaning my king is the legitimate and rightful heir. Melchizedek is a king of righteousness. He's the legitimate, rightful king who governs according to righteousness. He's also king of peace. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Yeru means city of Salem, city of Salem, city of peace. Salem is Derived from shalom, meaning the richness of the blessings of God. This is the king who governs rightly. He is legitimate. Over the city of God's blessings, from this place, God will bless all of the kingdoms of the earth. He is king, but he's also a priest, right? This is the picture that we get of him throughout scripture. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government king, the government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Verse 7, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. King of righteousness, king of peace, as well as priest. As priest, Melchizedek performed three functions with Abraham. First, he celebrated the victory. And he led Abram in worship. Abraham came in from this incredible victory. And Melchizedek pulls out wine and bread. If he had just wanted to basically rejuvenate warriors who are worn out from the battle, he would have brought water and bread. So he brings out wine and bread. That is the beginning of a royal feast. So the king Melchizedek treats Abraham as a king. And he says, let us celebrate. May you be blessed. And the greater blesses the the lesser, right? May you be blessed, Abram. And may God most high be blessed. Because he's the one who's given you the victory. This was not merely a physical victory. This was spiritual. And God gave you the victory. He leads Abram in worship. And as he's leading him in worship, he's informing Abram's understanding of God. He says, this is El Elyon. Abram, you've never known him by that name before, but let me reveal to you something of his character that you don't know that I do know. He is God most high. That is, there is no one like him. He he has no rivals whatsoever. What did Abram struggle with when he went down to Egypt? He struggled with a low view of God. That's what got him in trouble. He went down to Egypt and he was afraid. Why was he afraid? Because he didn't trust that God was great enough to protect him and to provide for him. 
Apparently, he began to view his God like the other gods who just had jurisdiction over a region. So they had to stop at the border, and then another God took control. And so now that he has passed into Egypt, some other God is in control. And Abraham is not safe. He is not secure. He will not be provided for. He has a low view of God. And Melchizedek says, let me inform your understanding of God. He is El Elyon. You may call others gods, but there can be only one El Elyon. He is God most high. And so Melchizedek serves as a king. He serves as a priest mediating the blessings of God. And he holds those offices together forever. And what's unique about him is that he joins kingship and priesthood in one person. In the rest of Israel's history, you won't see another person like this because the kings came from the tribe of Judah. The priests came from the tribe of Levi. And priests couldn't be kings, and kings couldn't be priests. When Jesus arrived, he came from the tribe of Judah, but he received a priesthood. But it couldn't be the Levitical priesthood. It had to be another priesthood. A priesthood in which he received it by appointment, not because of genealogy. So he could step outside of the tribe of Levi and give a priesthood to his son because he does not have beginning and he does not have ending. And unlike the Levitical priesthood who have to establish their genealogy or they cannot serve, Jesus doesn't have to establish his genealogy with God the Father. He has no beginning. God appoints him as priest. He will serve forever. The Levites will die and they will no longer be able to serve. Actually, Levites themselves could only serve from age 25 to age 50 and then they were done. But this priest will go on forever. And so Melchizedek serves as a type, as a model of a priest who will serve God forever. King and priest joined together in one man forever. Zechariah chapter 6, verse 13. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord and he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. He will be king. Thus he will be a priest on his throne. And the council of peace will be between the two offices of king and priest in one man. Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, that is your kingship, your right to rule, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. The Lord has also sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. King and priest in one. And Abram hears this. He receives greater revelation of who God is, El Elyon. He practices greater worship. He offers a tenth of the spoils, the cream of the crop. He takes it off the top and he gives it to Melchizedek, a priest who mediates the blessings of God to him. And as he does so, he grows in confidence of God. And his trust in God grows so he can take greater steps of faith and obedience. Read with me chapter 14 again in Genesis and verse 21. Genesis 14, 21. Now the king of Sodom, who had come out to meet him, who had observed this worship service, but certainly not joined in. King of Sodom said to Abram, give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. Well, of course, Abram was the victor. The goods all went to him. The king of Sodom does not show Abram respect. 
And as we'll see later, he consequently does not receive blessing from Abram. He says, take the goods for yourself, give the people to me. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Where did he learn that? From Melchizedek. Moments earlier, and what he has learned, he realizes now, no, 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 God, God is God most high. He is El Elyon. I don't need blessing from anyone else because I have blessing from God. There is nothing else that this man can contribute to my well-being because I worship El Elyon, God most high. I have sworn to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours for fear you would say, I have made Abram rich. You have nothing that I need. I don't want a thread. Certainly don't need gold or silver animals. I don't need a thread because I worship the one true God. The Abram is tested again, isn't he? When down in Egypt and he received physical financial blessing from Pharaoh. He didn't turn it away. He took it. There's another opportunity for counterfeit blessing. He says, no, I don't need that. I don't need anything from you because I worship El Elyon, God most high. You see what happens in Abram's life? He turns from God. The wheels come off, right? And so he returns. He repents and he moves back to worship. He doesn't have everything figured out. He doesn't know what the next step is, but he goes back to Bethel, the house of God, and he worships. He proclaims what he knows. And in that confidence, he takes a step of faith. He generously resolves this conflict with his nephew Lot with grace. He gives what is rightfully his. The promised land belongs to him. He gives. And as he takes a step of faith, God reveals more of himself to Abram, Abram, let me, let me tell you more specifically. It's north, south, east, and west. Go ahead and walk about. This is all yours. God reveals more and more of the promise to him. And he has greater confidence to step out in faith. He takes his men and he goes and accomplishes an amazing military victory. And when he comes back, he gets even greater revelation of God. And he worships again. And he has growing confidence in the Lord. And that's exactly what happens in our lives. See, sometimes we, we turn. We take a step away. It may be... A big step, it may be a small step. And sometimes God allows circumstances to get unwound in our lives. And he says, turn, return. He doesn't tell us exactly what the pathway will look back like. He just says, come back and worship and obey. Obey what you know. And I will reveal myself and I will reveal my will. And I will restore your trust and your confidence and faith. You're clinging to the rock again. Lean back. Trust me. I want us to apply this message. I want to give us one, one application. Um, but as we apply the message, if I could, could I get the men to, to go back and get communion prepared for us? Okay, one, one application. Over the last couple of weeks, our, our daughter has been coming up with just really profound questions about God and life and other things. I've been amazed at uh, the depth of her questions, the depth of her insight. Um, into really significant matters. And one of the first questions she asked a couple weeks ago, she said, how do we know that the Bible is true? It's a pretty good question, isn't it? It's a pretty foundational question. How do we know the Bible is true? Can, can we actually trust it? 
And so we talked about it. We talked about archaeology, right? We dig into the ground and we find things that affirm the historicity of the Bible. We talked about prophecy. God predicted things that would happen. And no one actually knows the future, but God has told us the future. God predicted things clearly. Uh, if you've seen Rick Larson's star presentation, he even wrote certain future historical events in the stars. As he cast them out and put them into place, he also included a message within them. So there are also patterns in the Bible. Melchizedek is one of those wherein God has revealed his future son, that his son who will come will be priest and king. It's a pattern. And all of these things demonstrate to us God revealing himself and revealing himself and showing who he is. Why? So that we would worship. And when we take this revelation and we use it to worship, not necessarily understanding everything about God or knowing all of God or, or knowing all of God's will for our lives, but we take what we do know and we use it as fuel for worship, God increases our confidence in him and we can take further steps of faith. And when we do that, God reveals even more of himself to us. And we grow deeper and deeper and deeper and richer in our faith and our confidence in God. And so this morning as we conclude in our worship, I want us simply to say, God, thank you. As we're served communion, thank you certainly for your, 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 the death and the resurrection of your son. But thank you also, Father, during this season that you, you sent your son. The radiance of your glory, the exact representation of your likeness so that we could know you. Let's take what we know of God and spend a few moments simply reminding ourselves and worshiping him. If I could, please have the men come forward and serve us. We'll, We'll wait till everyone is served and then we will take communion together. bread reminds us of the body of Christ and his physical suffering for our sins. Let's take the bread together. Cup reminds us of the death of Jesus Christ, his blood that was poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. Let's take the cup together. Father, we thank you for revealing yourself to us. Thank you, Father, that you give us truth by which we can worship you with all of our hearts, souls, mind, and strength. Pray, Father, that if in any way we have strayed small or large, that we would turn, go back to that place where you, again, are our center of our lives. We would worship. Father, we thank you that you have shown us your love in Jesus. Our hearts are filled, especially during this season, where we're reminded that you did not leave us dead in our sins, but that baby who was born in a manger was born to be king and to be priest and to reign forever and ever, to be the one who mediates the wonderful blessings of forgiveness of sin and life that lasts forever, to give us your riches, your, your best, to pour out upon us your blessing. Father, we thank you, we praise you, we worship you today. In Jesus Christ, amen. God bless you.
Have a great week.